The sermon this morning is taken from Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10, through chapter 6, verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This, is, this also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. This is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And he came from his mother's womb, and as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Joanna. Let's pray one more time for the preaching of God's word. Father, we thank you so much for this text. What a realistic text this is. It diagnoses who we are, doesn't it? It, it's, uh, it opens up for us the depths of our heart, the anxieties of our lives, the terrifying realities of life that we often do carry around a bitterness in our hearts precisely because we think that wealth would solve our issues, would solve our problems. We walk around with a sense of entitlement, thinking that we're owned something simply because we toiled. But Father, help us see that everything that we have, everything that we can enjoy here, Lord God, comes from your hand, and even the toil itself is a gift. Help us see, therefore, the key to joy. Help us see what it is that would truly satisfy us, which is your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Friends, welcome again to Covenant City Church. We are right in the middle of our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, we've said it before as just an uh, overview of this whole book. The purpose of this whole book 
is for us to become wise, for us to become mature, right? And the way for us to become wise, as Solomon or the author of this book, uh, is to take us and to confront us with the harsh realities of life. We've grown up into this world, and we try to cover us up from these difficult realities of life, and the author is simply saying you have to wake up from all of that. You have to look at the harsh realities of life with both opened eyes and see them, confront yourself with them, see the challenges of life. Don't hide yourself from it, but rather see that life is filled with suffering, that life is filled with oppression and evil and misery, and that life isn't a, 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 a rosy and happy place, but rather it's, it's, it's filled with trials, temptations, and suffering, and all kinds of things that we have to overcome. And it might seem that he's kind of cruel in doing that. Why would he do that to us, right? Well, shouldn't we try to shield ourselves away from it? Well, his purpose is so that when you grow up and as you go through life, you don't become a resentful person, you don't become a bitter person, and you don't become someone that just gives up, right? He wants you to be able to go through life and actually persevere through it to see the evils of life and not be shocked by it, not be paralyzed by it, but see them for what they are, expect them to come, and therefore persevere through them. And that's what wisdom is. That's what maturity is. Wisdom and maturity is taking up that suffering willingly. It's taking up the realities of life willingly, voluntarily, and saying, Lord, this is exactly what I have before me. You've warned me about this. Why should I expect anything different? You told me to pick up the cross. Why should I expect anything different? Why, should I, why did I expect the world to be a place where I could be entitled? Why should I expect the world to be something that conforms to everything that I want? But rather, see, again, the author wants to, to make sure that you see that all of your attempts to make this world your final home will not work. We'll see that all the finite things that you think would give you happiness will not ultimately work, and that ultimately our ground, our faith, our foundation has to be grounded in God and God alone. So again, he's going to repeat that theme here of making sure that we don't make finite things our idols, make finite things the ultimate thing. And he's going to take a look at here specifically in this passage at wealth, what we ought not to do with it. And actually, in this passage, it's one of the first times in the book where he doesn't just tell us what not to do. Because in chapters 1 to 5, so far, we've seen a lot of places where he tells us what not to do, right? Don't idolize the season of life that you're in. Don't pursue pleasure for pleasure's sake. Don't try to control your own story. Don't make false promises to one another or to God, right? Don't uh, uh, pursue yourself as the end of all things. So we've seen a lot of don'ts. But in this passage, actually, we see one of the first times where the, the author tells us what specifically to do. Positive advice. And that specific positive advice is specifically how to get joy. In other words, the author is here is honing in on the fact, if life is filled with all this misery, if life is filled with all this suffering, how then do we get joy? How then do we live, Right? And actually, this, this passage, before we even get to the three points, is structured in this way. Verses 10 to 17 warns us about life, and so does verses 1 to 9 in chapter 6. It warns us specifically about the dangers of trying to make wealth the source of your joy. So verses, one, verses 10 to 17 warns us about the love of wealth, verses 1 to 9 of chapter 6 as well. And right in between of verses 10 to 17 and 1 to 9 of chapter 6 is the soft middle the main point that the author is bracketing out and presenting to you as the main thing for you to take away. And that's in verse 18 to 20 of chapter 5. 
And that's where we want to camp on a little bit later today. But before we get there, we need to cover the warning signs first in verses 10 to 17 and a little bit in chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. So there are three points for today's sermon. First, how not to find joy. Second, the key to joy. And third, the greater gift. All right? Happiness. We're going to talk about joy and happiness. Everybody's tuned in now. Okay. One, how not to find joy. How not to find happiness. Well, look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Right off the bat, he wants you to know, here's how not to find joy. Here's how not to find satisfaction. Love of money. Love of money. And in fact, actually, he's so emphatic about this point that what he says here in verse 10 and verse 11, and later in chapter 6, verse 2, where he talks about how you might work with all of your life and try to get rich for yourself, but then a stranger might enjoy the fruit of your labor rather than yourself, that's actually a repetition of what he says in chapter 2, verse 20 to 21. So if you have your, your Bibles open, turn there really quickly. In chapter 2, verse 20 to 21, he's already said this. So I turn about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge, he's careful about his work and skill, must leave everything, the riches, the, the fruit of his labor, the product of his labor, to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil, right? So right in chapter 2, he's already telling you, if you want to toil all your lives just to accrue wealth, first of all, you're going to die. You're not going to be able to take that with you. You're, you're inherently toiling for something that you can't take with you. toiling for something that won't last. You're literally striving for the win. And secondly, another warning for that is, oftentimes when you toil for these riches, you don't get even to enjoy them. Someone else, a stranger, gets to enjoy them. And he repeats this in verse 11, right? Uh, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? And then chapter 6, verse 2, as we just saw being read, it says this, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is a vanity. It is a grievous evil. So three times at least already, he's, 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 he's repeated this principle. If you work all of your life for wealth, it's not going to last. You're not going to be able to take it with you, and a stranger could enjoy it, and all you could do then is stand and watch. He repeats it again in chapter 5, verse 11. He repeats it again in chapter 6, verse 2. Why does he repeat himself again and again? And if you actually take a look at the book of Ecclesiastes, he just talks about pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure, as, as, as the source of your joy, how we oftentimes, by default, go after pleasure in sex, in relationships, uh, to, to, to seek our meaning in life. He does cover that, but he covered it in one place, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and then that's it. He leaves it alone. But when it comes to wealth, he repeats himself in chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter 6. Why would he do that? And in fact, he's so repetitive, so to speak. If you just read through the book of Ecclesiastes, he's so repetitive on wealth that one of the books that I and Tezar have been relying on to preach through the book of Ecclesiastes didn't even cover chapter 5 and 6. Just skipped it. He's like, well, I've covered this. That's all in chapter 2, so let me just move on. But you see, why does... This wise author, the wisdom oracler, Solomon, or whoever wrote this, right? Why did he repeat wealth again? 
Because I think there's something perennial about wealth that we oftentimes just keep running back to it, thinking that that would be the source of our joy. That would be the source of our, of our happiness. That would solve all of our problems. Because with, maybe with pleasure, you might think to yourself, when you're young to your middle ages at most, right? That, that's okay to pursue that and that doesn't last. But, then, but something, there's something about wealth where from youth to old age, it's the thing that keeps coming back to you as, as, as what you think is a source of your joy and your happiness. There's something perennial about it. It's something that drives us. It's something that, that, that determines our rhythms and patterns. What we do throughout the week is what we think about oftentimes. We accrue wealth for ourselves and our family. We want to make sure that we have more and more and more. And we keep running back to it. And it's almost as if the author wants to make sure that you don't keep coming back to it. It's almost like he knows, I've just covered it in chapter 2, but once he gets to chapter 5, I'm going to remind you again. I know I just covered different topics, but I'm going to remind you again, do not fall into the trap of loving wealth. So, as he's giving out that principle in verse 10, the one that loves money will not be satisfied. After that, he gives us some implications of your love of money. If you love money, the second part of verse 10, it says... The love of money there will not satisfy, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Well, what does that mean? Nor he who loves wealth with his income. The picture that he has in mind here is the kind of person that uh, uh, pursues wealth by means of his income. So if you ask this person, why is it that you're working so hard to get more income? He would simply say to you, more income. In other words, this person is the kind of person who pursues profit for profit's sake. He's not the kind of person that sees profit as a means of benefiting other people, as a means of reversing the effects of the fall, as simply an an, an instrument for a higher purpose, whether humanitarian or familial or whatever. But he simply sees profit and income as ends in themselves. And why would you accrue more wealth? Simply to get more. It's a cyclical Pattern. That's the kind of picture here that you get. You love wealth with your income. In other words, you're using your income simply to get more wealth. That's the kind of image that you're getting here. What's the implication of that? Verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? What the author is saying here is the moment you love wealth, and you don't only love wealth, but you love wealth with your income, you're going to get this sense of entitlement, this almost territorialism with respect to the fruit of your labor that when you start to think about all the people that benefit from your labor, you get actually not happy but bitter. You think to yourself, what advantage do I have from this? I'm working, but other people are eating off my labor. I'm working, but other people are taking advantage of it. I'm working, but other people are enjoying it. So you get this kind of territorialism with respect to your goods, you feel like you own something, you see. And I think one of the greatest exemplifications of this kind of mentality is from uh, Gordon Ramsay's show, Kitchen Nightmares. I've been on a guilt binge of Kitchen Nightmares. And you know, there's like dozens and dozens of episodes. It's like 15 episodes per season or something like that. A lot of seasons from like 2002 to 2012 or something like that. And there's only one, one case where Gordon Ramsay actually walked away. And if you don't know the story, of the, 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 the premise of Kitchen Nightmares, Gordon Ramsay, world star chef, you know, successful guy and, and, and chef, basically goes to a failing restaurant and his mission is in three days to help the owners and to help the chefs cook good food and reestablish the restaurant. Okay, that's the premise. 
So it's a kitchen nightmare, he comes in and then it's a kitchen dream or something like that. That's, that's the premise of the whole show. And he would come in and he would taste the food and make sure that everything is okay. And then by the end of the show, he's refurbished the menu, uh, made sure that the owners get therapy or something and makes sure that, you know, by the end of it, the, 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 the kitchen and the restaurant actually runs well. Only one episode. There was only one restaurant, I'm not going to mention the name, you could Google it yourself, one restaurant where he actually walked away. And what caused him to walk away was this sense of entitlement in the owners. The owners were two people, husband and wife. The husband took the tips of the, 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 the waiters. He took the tips. And th by the way, in, in, the, in the U.S. context, that's atrocious, right? Because the livelihood of the waiters and the bartenders and so forth are based on the tips, right? That's what they live from. That's exactly their wages. That's their wages. And then the owner would take them. And then Gordon was astounded by this. Why would you take them? And he says, because I work harder than all of them. I own the restaurant. I gave them the job. I paid them a little bit already. Shouldn't that be enough? I work harder than any of them. And then the wife, who's the chef, couldn't take criticism. And why couldn't she take criticism? Her mentality as a chef, as an owner of the restaurant was, I've cooked you food. How dare you critique my food? I'm the one that cooked you all this food. You come and attack me and critique my food. You send it back to the kitchen after all my hard work, all my hard labor. And you see, <laughs> a restaurant owner in the right mind, you, know, you don't have to be a Christian to know this. You know that the purpose, at least on face value, right? It's not just to make money, but actually to make customers happy. This is why you cook the food, to make good food and please the customer. The customer is right. But there's a sense of entitlement in the both of them that Ramsey simply couldn't get through with them. That, that this, there's this entitlement. I own the tips. I'm the owner of the restaurant. No, I, nobody could critique me. I cook this food. And by the way, you don't have, I hope you're already seeing that this is not just something that happens out there, right? We have families in this congregation who are at each other's throats within the family simply because they taught to themselves, I worked hardest for this enterprise. I'm going to sue my own sibling because they are enjoying the food of my labor. How dare they? I'm going to make sure they have no food of this. Don't act like you're surprised. I know families in this place where their sibling rivalry is fighting over the inheritances of their parents, even though they know that Technically, they shouldn't be fighting over this because what did they do to work over it? I know families that, that, that know one another, that sue one another over a feud that happened from years ago simply over some kind of property and bad venture, simply because they can't let it go because they think to themselves, I am the owner. I am the one entitled for it. This is my due. You feel this in your own heart, don't you? This is not just something out there. This is something that we feel deep inside of our hearts. And so it's not surprising that in verse 12, look at what it says. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. I love that. Like if you want to have just one verse from Ecclesiastes, put over your front door or maybe your bedroom, this is it. This is it. All right? And let's not kid ourselves here, right? Um, we're an English-speaking church in Jakarta. Most of us, who, if you had a Western education and you could speak English, you came from a middle-upper-class families. And you know that this is true. You know that this is true. Some of you go home to mansions and you can't sleep at night because you're utterly miserable. Some of you knew the times when you were actually poor 
And then you, when you got richer, things didn't go away. You've actually lived through it in your lifetime. You experienced it. You didn't go happier and happier, but instead you grew bitter and bitter and bitter. Some of you who are just starting out, you knew what it's like maybe when you first started out with a Kijang Avanza and a Gojek driver passed through it and, you know, your, your, your car was scratched. You didn't think of it. And now you have a BMW. Someone scratched the car. You can't sleep at night. My BMW. Right? You know this to be true. There's something about wealth that actually doesn't make you more satisfied, but makes you more vexed, more, more, more angry, more bitter, more frustrated at things, right? And look at verse 17 of chapter 5. Look at what it says at the very end of it. What, this is, again, characterizing the rich. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Notice how the physical and the emotional go together, right? Precisely because he's rich and his, his full stomach can't let him sleep. He's worried about all the things that he might lose. He's worried about all the things that he has. He's filled with vexation, and thus he's sick, and thus he's angry. There's, there's this holistic crumbling of the person when love of money starts to infect the heart. So this is not how you get joy, friends. This is not how you get joy. And this is contrasted with the simple laborer in verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer whether he eats little or much. So what's the contrast here, right? The contrast here is the laborer uh, who's a blue-collar worker who knows the day's work and knows what he would eat for that day, and he thinks to himself, sufficient is the day for its own trouble. I'm just responsible for my work. I know that I need to put rice on the table. Contextualization, I didn't say bread. Um, He knows that he needs to feed himself, He knows that he just simply has to push buttons at work maybe or make sure that this brick wall is laid out or make sure that the farm is uh, harvested, whatever it is. He knows the day's work. He knows what he needs to eat that day. That's all he he needs to think about, right? There's there's a kind of joy and minimalism that that you don't have to think about all these other things that make you vexed. You know, I I remember a conversation one time um, as I was... uh, at the home of my parents, and you know, my parents have done pretty well because of their business in, in, in their life, and we have a caretaker that's worked for us for about 25 years now, and she witnessed a feud within the family and stuff like that, and I was, I was just having my coffee, trying to recover from what I just saw. Um, she kind of just looked at me, and you know, I try to tell her the gospel once in a while. Um, I try, in my broken Indonesian, and um, she... She told me one time, and I can't, remember, I can't forget this. She said, you know, I can't imagine what you guys have to go through. I just know that when I come here, I have to cook some food, and I go home, and I have my kids, and that's it. I'm, I'm okay. Um, I can't imagine what you guys have to go through, or all the things that are in your head. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, we do so much, and we go through so much conflict while we have houses and cars and all the more money that we could ever think about that, that, that could fill us with food for years. And yet here we are, psychologically impaired compared to a laborer, right? And is, don't you find that that's exactly true? Love of money doesn't satisfy. So just consider your own lives, friends. Consider our own lives. Why are we working so hard? Why do we lose sleep? 
why is it that you can't seem to turn it off? Why does it seem virtuous for you to stay up late on a Saturday night and keep working on whatever portfolio you're working on? Why do you find yourself still fixating on feeding a God that doesn't love you back? And I think the reason why the rich can't sleep is not simply anxiety of all the things that they need to care about and all the laborers under them, but rather it's the disillusionment that comes with it, right? It's this disillusionment. Have you considered the fact that sometimes the way that God could judge you is exactly by giving you what you want so that you can realize what you want was not the answer? That if you got up and you realized you had everything you wanted 10 years ago and now you had it and yet you're not any happier. You know, Jim Carrey was famous in saying, I wish everybody was rich and famous so that they could know that that's not the answer. And you might think to yourself, well, that's easy for Jim Carrey to say he's rich and famous. But don't you get it? Who else could say something like this? That's exactly why it's valid. It doesn't solve your problems, friends. So why do we live like it's the solution? Verse 13 keeps going. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's father of son, but he has nothing in his hand. And let's skip down to verse 16. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? So, love of money, love of wealth here, he's saying, it's, he's already covered, right? That in chapter 2, he's already covered that wealth is futile, that you can't take wealth with you. Working for wealth is striving for the wind. He's already, he's already established that. In chapter 5 here, especially in verse 13 and 16, He's not just saying that wealth is futile. He's saying that knowing that wealth is futile, if you love what is futile, if you love wealth, you're actually going to, to, to double your suffering. Look at what it says there. The phrase there that is important here is in verse 13. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. It was kept to his hurt. What, what does he mean by that? In other words, if you know that wealth is fleeting and it's going to go away and you can't take it away from you by death, if you love wealth, you're going to keep it to your own hurt because you're not only going to be sad when wealth is taken away from you, you're going to be utterly destroyed. You know, Job was one example of that as we saw in our confession of sin. When his wealth and his riches and his family was taken away from him, he was distraught. Yes, he was hurt, of course. He lamented about it, but he kept going. He worshipped. Why? Because he didn't keep it to his hurt. Wealth and family wasn't the first thing in his life that he held on to. And precisely because it's not the first thing in his life, when it was taken away, he was not destroyed. He could still keep worshiping God. But if you prioritize riches and wealth first, when it's taken away from you in a split second, right, in a bad venture, you're going to be utterly destroyed. And that's when you realize you've kept it away to your hurt. So don't increase and double your suffering. Don't unnecessarily pile on to suffer for yourself. The loss of wealth is really difficult enough. Don't double it with bitterness and the shock when that wealth is taken away from you by idolizing it. So how then do we go? How then do we, do we live? What, what, how then should we find joy? What is the key to joy? If, if joy is clearly not in wealth, if, if joy is clearly not in, in making sure that you love your wealth with your income, well, how then... Do we live? What is the key? Well, second point, the key to joy. The key to joy. And this is found in verse 18 to 20. 
And let me read this again for us. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There's at least two aspects, two aspects that is key to everlasting joy. First is you've got to realize that everything that you have is from God. You got to fill your life with a kind of gratitude that refers everything back in your life to God himself. And that's incredibly difficult for us to to imagine all these things in life that he's said here, the toil that you have, the wealth that you have, the possessions, the power that you have, the food even, and the friends that you enjoy. These things are from God. We have the innate sense of thinking that these things are our achievements, right? We have the innate sense to think that the, the enjoyment that we have in life, the eating and the drinking, our possessions, we've taken all that and we've received all that precisely because we pulled ourselves up in our bootstraps. We've, we've, we've worked hard for it. We are the ones who achieve these things, and so therefore we deserve all of these things. But if you're realistic with yourselves, you know that it is, this isn't true. And I don't care how rich or talented or how, how, how hardworking you are. If you lived in the 12th century under the bubonic plague, you can't go anywhere with your life. And if you think back about your life, think back about how you got to where you are, the relationships that you're in now, the career that you're in now, the food that you enjoy every day. Think back not about the, the moments of life that you toiled for these things, but think about all the chance encounters that had to happen for you to, to get through there. Think about how your families had helped you and financed you. Think about how you were fed as a young baby and not thrown away. Think about the fact that you were cared for by people around you. Think about the friendships, the chance encounters that, that helped you to become the person that you are today. And if you think to yourself and delude ourselves to the thinking that everything we have today is by our own willpower, we're never going to get the sense of gratitude, the sense of wonder that we have what we have, right? And actually, I think the ancient people got this more rightly than we did. Think about the CV, for example. When you think about the modern CV, what do you put in? You put in everything that you've ever done, your education, your achievements, all the work that you've ever done, your internships, uh, um, career changes, publications, whatever have you, right? So everything in, your, in the modern CV just tells you and signals to others about you, 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 achievement, achievement, achievement. How did the ancient people have a kind of CV? You know, in the book of Matthew, when you read the beginning of the book of Matthew and you read about why it is that Matthew wants you to listen to who Jesus is, what does he list? People, genealogies, and you see this throughout the Old Testament. Why was David important? People, genealogies before him. Why was Abraham important? Why was Solomon important? They, in other words, to tell you why this person is worth listening to, they didn't tell you about what they achieved or about to achieve. They tell you first who took care of them. They tell you first the kind of families that that, that were involved in taking care of them, and sometimes the friends that were involved in taking care of them. Because the ancient people had a sense of not their self as worthy, but as their dependence on others around them. And it's hard for us modern people to see that everything that we've ever had is actually from God. But there's more to this, because in verse, 
18 specifically, there are clues in this that tell you a little bit more about what the author is having in mind, okay? There are three phrases that we want to point out here. First, notice here that you have to, you have to see it as good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. That's the first phrase. There's a toil under the sun. The toiling under the sun has in view um, the fact that when you're living and alive under the sun, you have to do hard work. In other words, hard toil is the characteristic of human life now. Well, why is that? Second phrase you got to highlight, the few days of his life. In other words, the lot that you have, which is the third phrase there at the, at the last end of verse 18, the lot of your life is to toil under the sun and to enjoy the few days of his life. So what is the toil and, and what is the, the lot of humanity, right? The lot of humanity is hard work under heat and to enjoy the few days of life because why? We're going to die. Now, what does that remind you of? Genesis 3 verse 19, right, which is up here on the screen, it should be. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In Genesis chapter 3, in response to Adam and Eve's fall, God had ensured that they knew that their lot, and by the way, God was merciful, right? God told Adam and Eve, if you ate of this fruit, you will die. And then they ate of the fruit, and they didn't die. Instead, God told them this, now that you've ate of the fruit, you're going to toil. Your relationship with the world is going to be difficult. You're going to labor. You're going to do hard work under the sun, and you are going to die. Your days are numbered. So what is the book of is saying here? He's saying here not just to be in gratitude to God. Here's the second key that you got to know. You have to accept the sinner's lot. You have to accept the sinner's lot. What he's saying here is consider the fact that you are a sinner living under borrowed capital. You are a sinner living under borrowed capital. And what is that borrowed capital? That is your lot toiling under the sun and having a few days of life to enjoy. You see, friends, Adam and Eve could have been stricken down and killed immediately. But instead of being struck down and killed, God instead in mercy said to them, I'm not going to kill you. And you got to cry out, well, where's the, where then is justice, Lord? Well, how are you going to keep your word? But instead, he, he has mercy. Despite all those questions, he has mercy. I'm not going to kill you. Instead, I'm going to let you live. You're going to have a few days in your life, even though you'll return to the dust, you will have a few days of enjoyment, you'll eat and drink, and you will toil under the sun, but here you are now living under my mercy. Because friends, I want us to see the significance of this, okay? Remember a couple of weeks ago, the analogy I used was, some of us, right, if you walked into a hospital, and you were told that this was a five-star hotel, you're going to be bitter at everyone. It's not clean enough. There's sick people everywhere. The, the food is terrible. Where's my room service? You're going to be absolutely bitter. But if you walk into a hospital and someone told you this is a mental ward, this is a prison, you're going to think to yourself, this isn't too bad. Um, people are taking care of me 24-7. I've got free medication. You know, this is amazing, right? So in other words, how you perceive life at that point 
and how you persevere through it is completely dependent upon your prior expectations of what life ought to be. And here's another analogy that I want us to consider. We walk around, we have entered into life not knowing that we're like Adam and Eve in the garden, supposed to die. We've walked through life expecting things to work out for us because we walk in with the assumption that we're not criminals, we're princes. And so that's why you walk into the room and the first thing you think about is, how am I being treated? How are people writing of me? How are people speaking about me? How are people serving me? How may I gain from this, right? We walk into life thinking that we're princes deserving to be served. But what if, friends, what if you don't go into life expecting that, but rather you came into life knowing that you're not a prince, you're not an innocent, pure savior, but you're a criminal under the death penalty, and yet here you are free and alive. You know, when God killed the animal to clothe Adam and Eve as they're shaking in the dust, Adam and Eve couldn't complain to God saying, how dare you kill this bull? Why didn't you give me silky Versace? You think Adam and Eve had any grounds to say to God, how dare you, God? This animal is uncomfortable. You think Adam and Eve had any right to claim to God that they're not going to live forever? That they're not in silky clothing? That they're not eating the best? That they have toil? And if you know, friends, that you are living on borrowed capital, you're living on God's mercy and mercy alone, the wealth that you have, the possessions you have, everything in your life, friends, is solely by the mercy and the grace of God, then you could walk around in life like the main character of Les Mis, Jean Valjean, who when the priest gives him a little bowl of soup and bread, what could he say? Throw it back at him? How dare you serve me this? You're going to eat that up. No questions asked. You're going to gobble it. Why would you? Someone who's holy and pure. Oh Lord, take consideration of me and feed me soup. Friends, that's the key to joy. The key to joy, friends, is not what little meditation apps tell you. You deserve to be happy. You deserve to be good. You deserve, just think about how great you are. No, friends, the key to happiness and joy is to get rid of all entitlement and to know that you are a sinner on borrowed capital and all you can do, therefore, is be thankful. Why are you alive today? You've got hands. You could see. You could get married. You have food on the table. You've got cars that work around for you. You're 65 and breathing. You know, I had somebody came up to me in a funeral one time, and he says, you know, this person died after 70. You know, after 70, it's all grace. Before that, it's kind of tragic. And I told him, straight up, you know, if you're alive, it's all grace. It's kind of awkward afterwards. <laughs> he just kind of looked down and walked away, right? Uh, it's all grace. It's, it's, it's all grace. And, and you got to see that everything, therefore, is a gift of God. And then suddenly, if you, if you have this kind of perspective and you look back on your wealth, you're not going to be mad when other people enjoy the fruit of your labor. You're going to be happy. Why should you keep everything? It's not yours to keep. These are no longer rights that you're entitled to but gifts for you to provide with other people, for you to share, right? And then you don't go around thinking, oh, I've been snubbed, I've been snubbed. You're going to be joyful that even one person thinks well of you. And then when you're criticized, you don't lash out in bitterness because then you know to yourself, yeah, you might criticize me, but I've done 10,000 other things that if you knew about, I shouldn't even be here. Uh, you, you would hate me, right? 
You got a proper view of yourself. And this isn't low self-esteem because if you know that you're a sinner living by mercy, then you're humble to the ground, but you're not miserable because you're affirmed as well because yet here you are alive, breathing, and well, worshiping and having a, a relationship with God. And not only that, friends, when you, when you read in verse 19, this is the gift of God, and you know your New Testament, you got to think about the greater gift. And here's my last and final point, really briefly. Third point, the greater gift. When you think about the gift of God, there's one place in the New Testament that talks about the gift of God, and that's in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. Please turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. And some of you maybe know this by heart. If you don't, it's worth memorizing. It says here, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's the message of the Christian gospel, friends. It is not that we have to work hard and then God will reward us in the end. It is not that we will prove ourselves to be religious and that God will be happy for us. It is not that God is watching as a bystander. We have to then prove ourselves to him, justify ourselves before him by our good works. But rather, here is the message of the good news, friends. God didn't just preserve your life from death when you fell. God didn't just preserve your life so that you can actually have enjoyment and breathe on earth. God didn't just clothe you. You see, here's the greater gift of God, friends, that when Adam and Eve sinned before God, God didn't just not kill them immediately. What did he do? He didn't kill them. He killed a substitute. He killed an animal in their place because he had to keep his word. What was his word? If you eat of this tree and if you defy my word, you will die. And what happened? Someone else did die. Something else did die. An animal. And here's the lingering question in Genesis chapter 3. How can the blood of an animal cover the sins of sinful man? And friends, you hear a whole verse in the Bible. At this point, you got to know who this is pointing to, don't you? Here's the, here's the greater gift. Here's the gift of God. Not just that you're alive here, friends. Not just that you have given to toils for you to work here and enjoyment here on life and, you, and enjoy the, number, the few number of your days here. But rather, someone else who was holy and eternal became finite and his days became numbered. Someone else who never toiled, who never felt the heat of the sun, who was in his holy places, came down in your place, and he took the toil that wasn't a part of his, but your toil, the sinner's toil, and he lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you should have died so that you could be one with him today. That's the gospel. And if anyone else preaches anything different, that's a different religion. Why should you be happy here today, friends? What is the key to joy? You gotta just not see that you are living on borrowed capital, friends, but someone else lived on the death capital for you. I beckon you, believe in the Savior. Why should you live in vexation and sickness and anger? Why should you live as if the gavel hasn't yet been given? Why should you live as if God doesn't yet already proven his love for you? Why should you live as if this is not already done and finished? Friends, look upon your Savior. This is the gift of God. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself, so that no one may boast. 
for you are workmanship in Christ Jesus, created for good works. Go now live accordingly. Grace produces works. Notice that logic. If you could live in this way, how could you not be transformed? If you've seen that God loves you in this way, how can you still want to live the same old ways? How can you not love him? You'd be like Jean Valjean looking up at the priest. Oh, wretched sinner that I am. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Let us pray. Father, you have looked upon the miseries of this world, the miseries that was the product of our own sins. And you've told us not just merely how to live in it, how to live wisely in it, but you, you who are wisdom yourself, came down to live wisely in our place because you saw that we couldn't do it. You took the toil, not the toil of a righteous one, but the toil of the sinner. You who are eternal had days that were numbered. Father, help us behold this grace. Help us receive it in faith. Help us see this is not our works, but by yours alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.